Please be seated. So, again, welcome everybody. I'm Nelson, lead pastor, and so glad you're here. And if you haven't been with us, our series is called Epic. And the idea is we all want to be part of an epic story. There's something in all of us that wants our lives, our stories to have meaning, but more than that, to be larger than life. And our thesis is that we don't make our we don't get to be part of an epic story by making our small stories larger than life. The way we do that is by joining the epic story of God. So today, what we're doing is we're considering the question, how in the world do we do that? What is yours and my entry point into the epic story of the salvation of God? So some of us would say, well, I know what that means it means to become a Christian and you hear people like me say accept Jesus by faith and so some of you think well we become a Christian like we become a member of the YMCA or a member of the Rotary Club or maybe our PTSA at our child's school and so we just join and we start sort of joining in the activity of whatever they're doing and some of us feel that becoming a Christian is as easy as sort of laying out the spiritual options for our spiritual journey. We're deciding what path we want to take, and we think that's how it all works. And then some of us maybe are afraid, well, I'm not even sure I'd become a Christian, or what if I haven't done enough? What if it didn't take? But the bottom line with these things is all of us are sort of uh, wondering, what is it that I need to do to make sure that I enter the story, the epic story of the salvation of God? So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to read our next story in the book of Acts from Acts chapter 9. And I'll invite you to turn there in your worship guide or in your Bibles. And what we're going to learn is that joining the epic story is the result of God's loving initiative in our lives. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord? He answered. 
the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas and pray to him, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument for proclaiming my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. We receive uh, these words and we receive them as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes. And we pray that we would respond with obedience and love. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. You might recognize the story that we've just read. Sometimes we refer to it as the Damascus Road experience. It's the moment or it's the time when Paul went from persecuting Christians, the account begins, verse 1, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Then by the end of the reading, verse 20, to Saul beginning to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So Saul now is a person of faith. And the question is, what happened to him? Well, we might say, well, Saul was just like many of us. Uh, Saul became a Christian. Saul was a really smart man, so maybe he kind of laid out all the options on the table in front of him, and he finally concluded, well, this, this Christian thing has something going for it. Maybe I'll join up with them. Is that what Saul did? No. Saul's story, if you sort of notice the contours of it, it has a lot to do with seeing. Let's recall the narrative. Verse 3 it says, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so look at the language there. He says, who are you, Lord? And then the voice replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So the dialogue is significant here. We're learning. You know, we call the church the body of Christ. And Jesus is saying, really, touch a Christian and you touch Christ. Harm a Christian and you harm Christ. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul, he apparently had fallen to the ground and he gets up. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, here it was. He could see nothing, so for three days he was blind. So the story is about new seeing. It's about new vision. Now, some of you will know the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious man and he came to Jesus at night. And you, he was asking Jesus what he was all about. And do you remember how Jesus replied? John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus replied to Nicodemus, Very truly, I tell you that no one can, here's the word, see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So Jesus is saying to see a new world, you have to be born into that new world. Well, yesterday, Lisa and I went to visit um, the Kiernans in the hospital, and we were able to hold little Scotty. And when I was holding Scotty, I looked down, and his eyes were closed. And he'd only been in the world for one day. And I thought, well, like a day ago, he was in the womb and everything, you know, you couldn't see nothing, you couldn't see anything in there. But now he's out in the world for the very first time, and soon he's going to open his eyes. And so soon he's going to see uh, the big blue ocean and the bright orange sunset and the fire engine red cardinal perched on the branch of a tree. Soon he's going to see his parents' faces and the love in their eyes when they look at their son. Soon he's going to see a whole new world is going to open up to him. And why is that happening now? It's because he was born into the world. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, if you're going to see this brand new world of the kingdom of God, you have to be born into it. And so Saul has been blinded. It seemed necessary somehow. So what is it he needs to see? Well, later in Acts 22, Saul, who by then was called Paul, tells us more about what he heard the voice from heaven say to him. So in Acts 9, Luke is recounting the story. In Acts 22, Saul is recounting his own story. And he says, the voice said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you, Saul, to know his will. And here it is. And to see the righteous one. And to hear words from his mouth. You will be as witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. So here's the thing. It reminds me a little bit of Tom's story. Up to this point, Saul had been a religious man. He was a righteous Pharisee. Um, nobody could out-duel Saul in a war of religious words. But now something altogether new was happening to him. See, up until then, Saul had been a righteous Pharisee. But now he was learning his righteousness was as filthy rags. And he needed to depend on being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So all of it is new seeing. Saul's traveling companions uh, lead him by the hand to a house in Damascus. And it says the spirit then sends a man named Ananias to him. 
So last week we talked about gathering and scattering. We talked about the Spirit drawing us here together and gathering us, and then the Spirit sending us out to be part of the Lord's redemptive work in the world. The Spirit sends us. So last Thursday, I had the sense that I was being led uh, to go to a class at the YMCA. It was a hit class. And I didn't, I love this class, but I didn't really want to go this time because I'd had minor surgery earlier in the week and I didn't really feel good. And I didn't know if this was really a good idea to go to a hit class. But I had this prompting and I had this urging and I said, I think I need to obey this. And so I went to the class and right as I walked in the room, right before my eyes uh, was this young person. And I had known her um, more than a year ago. She was a school teacher, but then she moved to Boston and she was going to make a new life there. Well, that hadn't worked out, and so now she was back. And she'd only been back for two weeks. And so I had a chance, she was telling me, she was looking for a job and she was looking for people to befriend her. And I had a chance to befriend her and then also to invite her to church. So here's the thing. Ananias was sent to be part of the redemptive work that the Spirit was doing in Saul's life. So let's pick up the narrative. Then Ananias went to the house on Straight Street and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me, there it is, so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And here it is, he could see again. Well, it was more than seeing again. He could see what he hadn't seen before. He could see more than he had seen again before. He had been born into a new world. So this was Saul's entry point into the larger story. And so, you know, we could easily say, well, what happened? Well, Saul became a Christian, right? How clever of Saul that he would be wise enough to finally choose to join the church and join the Christian mission. How uh, clever of Saul to do that. He chose his own spiritual path, like somebody chooses to become a member of a political party. Is that what happened? No. This thing was completely outside of Saul's hands. You know, it was completely the Lord's initiative, wasn't it? I think of it that it was a divine takeover. It was like a loving spiritual smack, spiritual smackdown. Paul is laid out on the road to Damascus. It was completely the Lord's initiative. So here's why this metaphor of birth is helpful. You know, this isn't everybody's experience of birth, but in an ideal world, it would be true of you and me that in love, our parents conceived us. So in love, our parents envisioned that we would one day come into the world. And so our mother carried us and then bore us into the world. And then our parents received us, ready to love us and nurture us into the fullness of life. Well, the reason that that's helpful is we didn't have anything to do with our births. You know, our parents did all of it, right? We were there, but we had no memory of it. This is what was happening to, uh, to Saul, later become Paul, in his conversion experience. 
Something was happening. It was the divine initiative of God, and it was happening beyond anything he could have known or imagined. It was completely the Lord's initiative. So here's what we're learning from Acts chapter 9. This is sort of the main takeaway. Your entry point into the epic story is the loving initiative of God. It's the Lord's loving initiative, not your own. As much as we might want to think, oh, I'm responsible for my choices, and all of it is altogether up to me, that's not what happened to Saul. So the point is that if you have even a mustard seed of faith in Jesus this morning, it's because a loving God has come down from heaven and he has not just stayed there, but he has hunted you and me. He has tracked us down and he has given us the ability to believe in his son. Paul would later say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. The point of that is that faith is a gift. Hope is a gift. Salvation is a gift. And your entry into the epic story is a gift. And it's just like with natural birth. In our new births, in love, our Heavenly Father envisioned us reconciled to himself through the Son. And then the Spirit conceived the new life in us. So here's what you need to know about the Spirit. The Spirit is a new life giver. The Spirit always points to the Son. Just as in the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the unformed creation and breathed life into creation. And just as the Spirit hovered over Mary's womb and conceived the life of Jesus, the Spirit hovers over our dead souls and breathes new life into us. I think sometimes we think of salvation, it's a little like, hey, I'm out in the ocean, and there's a storm, and I'm bobbing up and down, and I'm on the surface of the ocean, and I'm about to go down for the last time, and then comes Jesus in a lifeboat, and he throws out a life buoy, and we are uh, smart enough, clever enough to grab onto it and be pulled into the boat. No. Saul's story would say, we are, uh, our, our, our lifeless body is stone cold dead on the bottom of the ocean. And God in his love scuba dives down. In love the Father comes and through the Son conceives, breathes new life into our lifeless lungs. And then he rescues us and brings us up to the surface and causes us to enter into life again. So the point is, our entry point into the epic story is the Lord's loving initiative. So what's our response this morning? It's just a single word. Uh, it's gratitude. And we respond with gratitude to any gift. And I want to give you a little Presbyterian theology this morning. And we're a church in the Reformed tradition. And if you'd like to know more about this, next Sunday at 9 o'clock, I'm going to be leading a class on what does it actually mean to be a Presbyterian community. And that'll be at 9, 9 a.m. in the community room. And you can come to that and then come to this service at 1030. But Presbyterians have long articulated uh, the order of salvation, the order of entering in, how we enter into the epic story. So where is the entry point? You know, we might, again, we, we're, we're tempted to think, well, it all starts when I turn over a new leaf and I believe and I respond. And that's part of it. But that's not where it starts. 
So here's how Reformed Christians articulate it. Our entry into the epic story starts with effectual calling. And that is the loving initiative of God. In love, God the Father has a vision for you and being, being reconciled to himself. And so he hunts us down. He comes from heaven to earth. He tracks us down. We have no agency at this point. The Lord, in his love and mercy, is pursuing us. And we might think, well, our part comes next, right? No. Step two is regeneration. That's the new birth. In love, your heavenly Father, uh, again, has envisioned you reconciled to himself. And so the Spirit conceives in you the new birth, the new life. You and I had nothing to do with our physical births, and we have nothing to do with our spiritual births. It's all the loving initiative of God. Step three, well, now for the first time, we're involved. It's conversion, which is faith and repentance. We choose to respond to God's irresistible grace with faith in his son and repentance unto a new way of life. Fourth comes justification, which is to be declared righteous in the court of law. It's not that we are righteous in the natural. It's that the judge looks at us and he doesn't see our guilt. He sees the righteousness. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Next is adoption, which is to be received into God's family as a son or daughter with the full rights of sons and the inheritance of sons. Then sanctification, which is the work of the Spirit to make us holy. When we receive the new birth, sin no longer reigns in us, but there's surviving sin there. So sanctification is the trajectory of the Spirit eliminating sin from our heart and life, consummated in glorification. Next is perseverance of the saints. It's the sovereign work of God to hold his children fast in the midst of our trials and our sufferings and, yes, even our doubts. Once we have received the new birth, we cannot lose our salvation because the Savior himself preserves us unto eternal life. And then finally, glorification, which is the state that all believers will enter into when Christ returns. We will be the new community in the merged new heavens and the new earth. So friends, do you, do you sort of, as, as we read that over and as we think about how it's been manifested in our own lives, do you feel the gratitude in your life? Um, we're, we're celebrating what God does. We're celebrating what the Lord has done. We're celebrating the initiative of the Father in love and the Son who came down and the Spirit who is hunting us down, conceiving in us the life of the Son. So there's a puzzling part of the story of Saul's story, and it's the part that's puzzling about our own stories, and it's, it's the suffering. In verses 15 and 16, if you noticed it, the Spirit told Ananias, he sort of commissioned Saul this way. He looked out into the future and he said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And then he says this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And we go, hi. We're thinking, it was going so good here. You know, Saul is being um, converted and he's coming into the life of the church. And then this, how much he, he will show him how much he must suffer for his name. And there's, there's some mystery here. And there's mystery in flourishing faith and flourishing hope. And we think, oh my gosh, well, faith and hope would flourish when things are going exactly the way we want them, right? 
No. Faith and hope and even joy can flourish in even the most difficult of times. And they flourish in suffering. And they flourish uh, as our faith and hope are, are, are purified through the things we have to endure. So I want to invite you into your own response of gratitude as you think about now, you may not have a dramatic story. Most of us don't have a dramatic story. I think Paul, you know, Paul was kind of a, um, uh, just kind of a, uh, what's the word? He's kind of, he was just kind of a, an old cuss. You know, he, he Paul, Paul needed a smackdown in order for his life to be changed. He was an obstinate old cuss. That's what I was trying to, Paul was going to make a big presence in the room regardless of which direction he was going. So for some reason, in the Lord's wisdom and mercy, he had to really lay Saul out. But we may have had the new birth in a quieter way, in a different way. I'm not even sure that Saul knows precisely the point that he was reborn, but it was somewhere in there in the story. What was focused on is the evidence of the new life of faith. And that's the same for you and me. Somewhere in there, in your story, uh, you have been uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and reborn. And what's important is the evidence of faith. And maybe you've been kicking against the goads and you don't even want to believe. But the Spirit is pursuing you and tracking you down. Well, we have a chance today just to recognize the Lord's loving pursuit in our own lives and to respond with gratitude. And so I'm going to invite you to respond with the Apostle Peter. He offered a hymn of gratitude, and I'm going to invite you to read it with me as we close this morning. And so I would ask you, as you read it, to make these words your own. The Apostle Peter wrote this. Uh, say it with me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These sufferings have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, welcome to the epic story. Let's pray.
Lord, we can scarcely imagine uh, how much you've done for us. And we can scarcely even take in uh, how you have cherished us, how we've been the apple of your eye and the one that your heart desires to be in relationship with and to spend eternity with. And so you're doing a work in us today to reform us and reform who we understand ourselves to be and how you have operated with us to bring us to yourself, to seek us out and to bring us to yourself. Thank you, thank you. What a marvelous God we worship. What a marvelous, marvelous God you are. And we give you all the honor, glory, and praise. In Christ's name, amen.